Uh, we're in Romans. We're not in Romans 6, even though the series has been in Romans 6. As I was looking at where we were, uh, what we had left in Romans 6, I think we kind of covered the gist of where Paul was going last week with that. Uh, I, I wanted to end somewhere else, and I wanted to end somewhere else in this series on talking about our identity by focusing in on our identity as part of God's family, which I think is the most significant part of our identity as believers that any of us enjoy. You know, we've talked about our identity as those that are dead to sin and alive to God. We've talked about our identity as those that are free from sin and now enslaved to God. We've talked about uh, our identity as those who are, are called to present our, our whole selves now as instruments for righteousness to God and not instruments of unrighteousness to sin. But I, I think as, as Paul kind of finishes up this section between Romans 6 and Romans 8, he hammers home on just amazing chapters in Romans 8. Romans 8 is like the, the, the heaven chapter. Like if you just spend time in Romans 8 for all of eternity, you will not exhaust the encouraging content there. He starts off with that great line where he says, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That's amazing that no matter what you do, if you are in Christ, there's no condemnation for you, that you won't be judged, you won't be condemned, you won't be uh, thrown into hell for sins that you commit because you are in Christ and you are safe there. And he goes on and he talks about you know, the, the, the light momentary afflictions. He talks about the present uh, suffering that we're enduring right now. He's thinking about eternity. He's like, you know what, it's, it's nothing in light of what's coming in eternity. And there's the section that we're going to talk about tonight where he's talking about uh, our, ad our adoption as sons and daughters of God. And then he finishes Romans 8 with the great text where he says there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Nothing that can separate us. And he, he lists all of these things. And he lists some pretty amazing things. He lists, you know, principalities and powers. And he lists height and depth, width, length, breadth, everything else. But he finishes and he says, nor anything in all creation can separate us from the love of God. That means what we're about to talk about tonight, your identity as a believer in Jesus Christ, your identity as a son or a daughter of God, nothing can take that from you. And that includes you. Some people want to say, well, I, I understand that nothing can break my relationship with God, but can't I break my relationship with God? Well, you are part of all creation in Romans 8. And so when Paul says nothing in all creation can separate you from the love of God, that includes you. You can't separate you from the love of God if you are in Christ Jesus, if you've been made part of his family, which is what we're talking about tonight. Something interesting happens when you have a, a child, and then when you have two, and then when you have three, and then when God gives you two at the same time, and you've got five all of a sudden. It, it, it's something that a, a, a switch flips, and it's hard to describe, but you'll know it when it happens. And that is when you have a kid, all of a sudden when you hear of something bad happening to a child, or you read something in, in, on, online in the news, or you see or you hear something on, on television in the news of, of something tragic happening to a child, there's a, a depth of feeling and resonating with that that strikes you in a way that you, you never experienced before you have kids of your own. And it's not to say that it doesn't make you sad right now where you sit if you don't have a kid to say, yeah, it's, man, that's, that's tragic, some of the stuff that happens to kids and some of the, the, the bad things that happens in this world. But when you have a child of your own, all of a sudden it hits you in a different way. I mean, even watching TV shows and movies when the plot line involves a kid getting hurt, like you can ask my wife, I, I'm like, okay, if, if this kid gets, gets hurt, I'm, I'm done, I'm, I'm out, I'm, I'm walking away from this. There's this guttural response that you have, this this instinctual revulsion at it because all of a sudden, now that you're a parent, you look at that child who's been harmed and you think, man, what if that was, what if that was my kid? And, and you feel it. And you feel the hurt of the loved ones that are grieving. Or you feel the, the, the hurt of that child. If, even if it's just a broken arm, you're like, man, that, that, my heart goes out to them because I know how painful that is for them and I know how painful that it is for their, their parents. See, being a, a part of a family, and some of you have grown up in some jacked up families, I understand that. But being a part of a, a loving family, the way a family was designed by God to operate and work is a good thing. Being a part of God's family is a far better thing than even the best, like, leave it to beaver style family that, that you could imagine on this side of eternity. 
being called God's son, God's daughter, is the, the greatest reality that any of us could ever experience. And that's why I think it's so good to, to end our series on our identity with this identity of our, our adoption in Christ. Some of you in this room may have been adopted, but all of us are at least somewhat familiar with the concept. And it worked the same way then as it does now. It's, it's a legal transaction whereby the, the child being adopted is declared to be officially, legally part of the family that brings them in to be a part of their, their home. In fact, a lot of times if, if you talk to uh, parents who've adopted children and, and sometimes people will ask, well, yeah, but do you have any children of your own? The adoptive parents, they, they get offended by that question and they should get offended by that question. I mean, we know what, what you're asking. Do you have any biological children? But really, what, what their offense is over is they're saying, all of them are my kids equally. Because as soon as you've been brought into a family, been adopted, you are fully part of that family. And that's true for us as sons and daughters of God as well. And that's where Paul goes in Romans chapter 8. I want to pick up in verse 12 and read through verse 17. The Apostle Paul says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, ladies, you've already heard me refer to sons and daughters, and I don't want you to be offended by the fact that when we read this, all we hear about is sons. There's a reason behind that, and that is in this culture and during this time, the son was the heir. The son was the one who the inheritance was given to. And so the Apostle Paul is not trying to exclude you, ladies. He's trying to say, even you ladies, you have that identity as part of God's family, as that full heir in Christ. And so if you hear me tonight just refer to sons, though I'm going to try to be equitable in my language here, uh, don't take offense at that. You're not excluded. You're very much a part of what Paul is talking about here. But he begins in verses 12 through 13, and he's kind of recapping where we've been. He's saying, look, you don't owe anything to the flesh anymore. Again, this, this break that's taken place in your relationship. The old is gone, the new has come. You are a new creation in Christ. You've died to sin by being united to the death of Christ so that you may no longer walk in sin, but walk in newness of life. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life. You don't owe anything, he says, to the flesh. He says, in fact, if you live by the flesh, you will die. He's saying, if you go on continuing to identify by the old man, you go on continuing to say, you know what, thanks for, for the offer of Jesus and everything, but I'm good with what this world offers me. Paul's saying the end is death. But then in a, a, just a, a great play on words, he says, but in, if instead you put to death sin by the Spirit, then you will live. Put to death sin by the Spirit. See, earlier in Romans chapter 8, he's talked about the Spirit. And he's talked about the spirit as a defining marker of those who are in Christ. If you are in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you are not in Christ. And so Paul's saying, if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, then you will live. This is, guys, this is what we've been talking about over the last three, four, five weeks in this whole series. We've been talking about our identity in Christ now that we've got a different relationship to sin, a different relationship to the world, that we're no longer owing anything to the world. We no longer have to obey our lusts and temptations, but now we can choose instead to submit ourselves in obedience to Christ, to present ourselves to him as instruments of righteousness. But then he turns now to get to the, the, the good news here of, of this concept of adoption in verse 14. Look what he says. He says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Sons and daughters of God are children of God. All who are led by the Spirit of God. I just mentioned to you guys that, that the Spirit is key to a, a, a believer's life. In fact, if you don't have the Spirit, you are not a Christian. The Spirit is not given later on. The Spirit is given to you at the moment of salvation. You are saved, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. It's a one-time transaction that takes place. And so now Paul's saying, for those who are led by the Spirit are 
children of God. Why? Because the Spirit is the one by whom we put to death the deeds of the body. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? How do I know if I'm being led by the Spirit? How do I know if I have the Spirit at work in my life right now? And that's a good question. Turn over to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians, if you're in Romans, turn to the right towards the back of your Bibles, a few books. Past 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and then you'll come to Galatians. Galatians 5. I'm going to start in verse 16. Here Paul gives us a pretty good understanding, a pretty good grid, a pretty good litmus test for ourselves as to what it looks like to live a life that is led by the Spirit. And he does so by contrasting first what it looks like to live a life that's not led by the Spirit, a life that's led by the the flesh, that's enslaved to the flesh. He says this, but I say, verse 16, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So right there, we see one of the markers of being led by the Spirit is that we are winning the war against sin in our lives. That we're not gratifying every single lust and, and, and sinful desire that we have pop up in our lives. That there's a battle, and that there's evidence of, of victory there. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Why? For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. They're opposed to God's Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit, in contrast, are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, there's a phrase right there, right? If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh, these are the things that, that we are, are no longer doing, that no longer characterize our lives. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality idolatry, sorcery. By the way, that, that word sorcery, when you read sorcery, think, uh, think drugs, think narcotics. It's from the, the Greek word where we get the word pharmaceuticals from. So when you read sorcery, don't think the, the witch hat and the cauldron and boil, boil, double, troil and, and all that jazz. Think drugs when you read that. That's what it's talking about. People are like, drugs aren't addressed in the Bible. No, no, they are. Sorcery, enmity, hostility towards one another, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, to clarify what he's talking about here, he's saying if these things are the overwhelming characteristic of your life, you look at your life and you're like, yeah, I can check off the majority of these, hopefully not orgies, but you can check off the majority of the other ones, you're, you're just ticking off the list there going, yeah, this is, this is me. These things are present in my life. Paul's saying you've got serious reason to pause and check yourself as to whether or not you are actually a believer because what you are marked by is not a life that's being led by the Spirit, but you are marked by a life that is consumed by the flesh. And so that's a, a, a very specific and a very real list for us to deal with and hold up to our lives and say, okay, where am I at in this? In contrast, then, he says, but the fruit of the Spirit. If you're being led by the Spirit, these are the things that you're going to see in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, he says, there's no law. In other words, do this as much as you want. You can't, do, you can't be kind so much that you're going to break some law. So just excel still more in these things is what he's saying. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh, put to death the flesh with its passions and desires. So what does it look like to be led by the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The, the fruit of the Spirit. When you look at your life, do you see those things at work in your life? And if you see those things at work in your life, then what you are seeing is you are seeing evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in your life because those things are not natural to any of us. So as you look at your life, do you sense the Spirit's leading in your life? Do you ever look at your life and and conclude, okay, that must be God because left to myself, there's no way I would have ever done what I just did. There's no way I would ever be able to to resist the temptation that I was just able to resist. 
There's no way that I would ever have gotten up early in order to make it to church. There's no way I would have ever set aside the, the TV or the video games or whatever and chosen to pick up my Bible and read instead. Do you ever see God's Spirit at work in your life? If you have, this verse, verse 14, should be immensely encouraging to you. For all who are led by the Spirit are children of God. God is saying, in other words, that this is a mark of a genuine believer. That's our first point tonight. It's this, look for the Spirit's leading in your life. Look for the Spirit's leading in your life. A couple of years ago, we went camping uh, with the, the men here at the, the church, and we were out, and the men wanted to be active, and uh, I, I didn't, but I had to go because I'm the men's pastor, and I, it doesn't look good for me to just stay at, back at the camp and sit on my butt. Um, but Kellen was there, and we were like, hey, let's go on this hike. And we were on, at, down at, at Palomar, and uh, it, it wasn't like this super intense hike. There were some guys that went on that. We're like, we're going to pass on that. But we were going on this hike, and we're walking out to some lake, right? Reed mosquito-infested stagnant pond is what that ended up being. Because we're like, oh, yeah, sweet, it's a, it's a hike to a lake. And so we got out there, and it, it was gross. It was nasty. It didn't smell good. It was hot and, and buggy and everything else. And we're on this trail that until that point was pretty well marked. Well, then we keep going and there's a fork in the trail and there's no signage. And we understand that there's some of these trails that if we get on, we're not getting back to camp before dark at this point. Like it's just going to lead us off into the San Diego wilderness and we're, we're just, we're lost. And there was division in the, the ranks about which way we should go. Some guys were going, clearly this is the right way to go. And others were going, clearly this is the right way to go. And I had my phone out just praying for a bar of service to be able to pull up the map, to be able to figure out where in the world we were and how to get back to camp. And so we ended up making this decision to, to go. One, one guy wanted to go up the hill, and, and this is clearly not a path. Like, there are trees falling across and boulders lying in the path. He's like, this is the way we go. That's not the way we go. So we just kept going straight, hoping that it was going to loop us back around. Well, it started to curve in the right direction, so we started to feel okay about it and better about it. And then, but we kept going, and we were like, how long is this hike? And it was only supposed to be like three miles round trip. My perception of three miles was severely off that day because I was like, we've clearly been out here for like 10 miles. There's, this is horrible. Like, we are lost. We're never going to get back. My five kids are going to grow up without a dad. It's, it's just bad news. And then finally, we came to a sign, and that sign read, the name of the trail that we were supposed to be on. And then it was like, okay, we're good. Okay, we're good. We're on the right trail. We just got to keep going. Pray for no more fork, forks. Don't listen to John back there. He has no clue what he's talking about. Let's just keep going this way. But it was assuring. And then all of a sudden there were more signs the further along we went on this trail. And finally we made it back to the camp and everything was good to go. Guys, those, those signs, those are what the fruit of the Spirit are to us as believers in our lives. As we're looking around at, at our lives, as, as there's those moments in our lives as believers where we've neglected some things that we shouldn't have neglected, and maybe we felt dry and we felt distant from the Lord, and then all of a sudden we're like, man, where am I even at right now? Do I have a relationship with God? And that doubt begins to creep in, and that's why it's so good for us to read a verse like this to say that all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God, are children of God, and to say, okay, do I see evidence of the Spirit's leading in my life? And if I do, it's like finding that sign on that trail that we're out hiking on that says, hey, you're, you're good. You're on the right path. You are on the right track. You are a child of God. As I was thinking about this in preparation for this message, the thing that kept coming back to mind, and it's one of the fruit of the Spirit, and I think it's so crucial for us as we're thinking about this and, and how we live our lives and our identity in Christ and battling this world, and it's the, the fruit that, that is self-control. Self-control. And that kept coming back to mind over and over and over again, because without the Spirit, we don't have control of ourselves. Our sins, our lusts, our flesh, they own us without the Spirit of God. But when we are saved, all of a sudden, now we have the ability to exercise self-control over those desires in our lives. And so as you look at your life, self-control is one of those attributes of being led by the Spirit that I hope that you see, and I hope that you see it in abundance. Paul was abundantly clear about its importance, as were other the, the New Testament writers, including Peter. 
He says this in, in 1 Corinthians 9.25. He's comparing the pursuit of Christ to an athlete. And he says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. So he's telling us as believers, look, you want to run the race well, you need to also exercise self-control in your life. He says in Galatians 5.23 that self-control, as we just read, is part of the fruit of the Spirit. It's part of that contrast between what the works of the flesh are and what the work of the Spirit is in your life. That you should see the fruit of the Spirit. 1 Timothy 2.9, ladies, there it's, it's listed as the mark of a godly woman. That a godly woman is a woman of self-control. 1 Timothy 3.2, self-control is a necessary quality of a pastor, of a leader of God's church. He needs to be a man of self-control. 2 Timothy 1.7, Paul says, God has given us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. That's pretty amazing that he puts self-control in there with those other two markers. Titus chapter 2, verse 2, it's also not just the marker of a godly woman or the marker of a pastor, but in Titus 2.2, 2, it's the marker of a godly man. A mature believer is a, is a man of self-control. Titus chapter 2, verse 6, something that young men should be striving for, self-control. Titus 2.12, there it's a product of the grace that saves us and trains us to live upright, godly lives in this present age. It's, it's, it's that the God's grace saves us and then sets us on a life that is marked by self-control. And then in 1 Peter 4.7, 1 Peter 4.7, there Peter looks at the impending reality that God is going to send Jesus back for the church at any moment. And it's in the context of that passage where it says, you know, God is not slow as you count slowness, but he's being patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should come to salvation, come to, to faith and repentance. And then after that, he says, so then, considering that, that God is going to return at some point, and that this world is going to go through the tribulation and then be burned up and the new heavens and new earth are going to come, he asks us as believers, all of us as believers, he says, what sort of lives should you then be living? And one of the, the characteristics that Peter suggests that we should be modeling is self-control. So as you look at your life and you say, okay, do I see evidence of the Spirit's leading in my life? I want to suggest that, that a key area to look for is self-control. And in fact, it's going to bleed over into so many of the other areas of your life. In the area of, of purity, self-control when it comes to lust, when it comes to your sexual interaction with your boyfriend or girlfriend, when it comes to pornography, when it comes to just pushing boundaries with somebody that you're dating. If you are being led by the Spirit, you are going to have self-control in those areas. Sobriety, drugs and alcohol. If you are being led by the Spirit, you are going to have self-control in those areas. Your words that you speak if you are being led by the Spirit, exercising self-control, you're not going to be a person who's gossiping, who's slandering. You're not going to be a person whose speech is marked by profanity. Anger. Self-control is huge in our battle with anger. Do you have a short fuse? If you have a short fuse, that's an evidence of a lack of self-control in your life. What are you like on the road behind the wheel? What are your, the, the thoughts that you entertain? Maybe you control your outburst externally, but internally you're just boiling. And then wrestled with putting this into the mindset of, of sinfulness. But maybe you're just out there and you're, you're, you're an atheist. You would say, I, just, I don't believe any of this. Well, I would say that also comes down to self-control because so much of atheism is a desire to escape the accountability that is there when we admit that a God exists. And so you, you don't want to have to exercise self-control. And so you remove any need to, at least in your own mind, you remove any need to. Self-control. If it's there, it's evidence that you are living a spirit-led life as a believer. Same thing we could say for those other attributes, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, for humility. Colossians chapter 3, Paul encourages us, to put on humility, compassion, purity, forgiveness, right? These are signs of a life that is being lived, led by the Spirit. And again, these are not natural things. 
if you look at your life and you see the, the presence and the evidence of God's fruit at work in your life, these things at work in your life, you can have confidence that you are living a life led by the Spirit of God. And Paul's saying, if you are living a life led by the Spirit of God, that is a familial marker that you are a son or daughter of God, that you belong to him, that you have been adopted by him. It gives us great confidence in our relationship with God. And that's where Paul goes next. Look at verse 15 in chapter 8. He says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, as daughters, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with your spirit that we are children of God. Let's parse his argument here. First, he talks about the spirit of fear, the spirit of slavery leading us to fall back into fear. First question we have to ask is slavery to what? We might say sin, right? But I, I don't think it's sin. I think it's the law. He's just come out of Romans chapter 7, remember? We're talking about how we are imprisoned under the law and that the law condemns us, that the law can't save us. In fact, that's Paul's whole thesis in Romans chapter 1 through 4. Is look, if, if you're sitting there and you're trying to be good enough by being a, a holy enough person, by living up to God's standards according to the law, Paul's saying that's not possible. The law is not meant to justify. It's meant to condemn you. It's the mirror into which we look and we see our, our, our imperfections. We see our sin and we say, wow, I need help. That's what the law is there to do. And before Christ, we are enslaved to the law, which leads us into fear. Fear of what? Fear of condemnation. Fear of judgment. Fear of punishment. Fear of hell. Fear of hearing God say, depart from me, I never knew you. That fear is a product of our slavery to the law, of our being reminded day after day after day after day after day, I'm not good enough, I don't measure up, I can't be good enough. That's the type of slavery that we have been freed from. And Paul says here, as believers, those who have been adopted, you haven't been given a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. In other words, your identity as sons and daughters of God is not about fearing God's judgment, fearing disappointing God, fearing failing God, fearing not living up to some of his standards for you. Some of you come out of home lives right now where that is your existence with your mom and dad. You fear disappointment because you feel like that's all you've ever been to them. You fear not living up to their standards because you feel like you've never been given an attaboy or a, hey, great job by your mom and dad. And what Paul is holding out to you is he's holding out to you an identity that you can be part of God's perfect family and God is not going to operate with you the same way that your fallen mom and dad have operated with you. But he's going to embrace you as his son, as his daughter. He's going to say, I love you. He's going to have a, a relationship with you that is not based on you measuring up because Christ measured up for you. But he says, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, as daughters, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, Again, these are the evidences of, of one who's in Christ. You've been given the spirit of adoption as sons, as daughters, access to God the Father that is the same as what Jesus himself enjoyed. Point number two for us tonight is this. Enjoy the confidence of being adopted. Enjoy the confidence of being adopted. That you don't have that spirit of slavery, that spirit of fear any longer, but a spirit of adoption. Now, being a part of my family gives you access to me that not everyone enjoys, right? My kids are free to burst into my room in the middle of the night and come do the creepy children of the corn two inches from my face thing. Daddy, 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 daddy. Until I wake up and, and have a heart attack and say, what do you need? I had a bad dream. Can I get in bed with you? And I'll, I'll grab whichever one it is and, and just toss it between my wife and I, right? My kids enjoy that access because they're part of my family. You don't have that access to me, okay? I'm just making that clear right now. We're, we're all on the same page with that, right? So you guys get that there's a, a level of familiarity and a level of access, a level of intimacy 
that you have with your family that you don't enjoy with other people's families, at least not legally and not for long without handcuffs being put on you, right? (laughs) That comes with being made part of a family. And God's now saying to you, you are now part of my family. And it's amazing here what he says here. He says that we can go to the Lord and say what? Abba, Father. People want to make a big deal out of that, that that word is, it means daddy in the Greek. And others on the opposite end are like, don't you dare call God daddy because that's disrespectful. And other people are like, but it's daddy. And it, that's not the point of what Paul's saying here. It's not. And we, we waste too much breath with that. Yes, it was an intimate term that only a family member used for their father, right? You're not going to walk up to somebody on the street and call them Abba in ancient Greek culture. They're, they're going to look at you like you're a freak, and, and, and you would be. It's weird, right? It belongs within the household. But I think Paul and, and God, through Paul, was driving at something even more significant here. Mark chapter 14, 26 Mark chapter 14, 26. Let me paint the scene for you. The upper room has already taken place. Judas has been dispatched to go and and betray Christ. Judas is meeting with the the rulers at this time, saying, hey, I'm going to lead you tonight to where he is. I know where he's going to be. The disciples have finished the supper. They've left the upper room. They've walked through the streets. They've walked out of the city, and they've walked into the the garden of Gethsemane. And they've gone to the place that they always meet. And Jesus leaves the majority of them in this cave where I got to actually stand and and preach uh, in March, just a phenomenal experience. But he leaves them in this this cave where they would have been. And then Jesus says, I'm going to go off and and I'm going to pray. And he takes two of his disciples with him, but he even leaves them about a stone's throw away. And then he goes off a little bit further and he kneels down and he begins to pray to God. But Jesus doesn't kneel down and begin to pray to God saying, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And what's so amazing and what I think Paul is pulling at here is when Jesus hits his knees and Jesus begins to pray in one of the most dire circumstances of his earthly existence, Jesus calls out to God, Abba, Father. Abba, Father, our Savior, as he's kneeling with the cross in the forefront of his mind, the cross mere hours away at this point, suffering unlike anything that any of us would ever have to endure, staring him in the the face and imminent in his life. Jesus addresses God the Father in the most, it's, it's a glimpse into one of the most intimate relationships that has ever existed in all of eternity between God the Father and God the Son. And Jesus goes to the Father and he addresses his Father by saying, Abba, Father. He says, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you, what you will take place. And what Paul is saying to you and I is now that we have been made sons and daughters of God, we can go to God with the same words, the same passion, the same intimacy, the same familiarity that Jesus did on the night that he was betrayed as he was praying and asking that the cup would pass from him. We're not less than in our access to God than the Son of God himself is. What an amazing privilege that is for us as being part of the family of God. See why it's not about whether or not it's respectful to say daddy? That misses the point completely. We can go to the Father with the same intimacy, the same access that Jesus goes to the Father. Because in Christ, we have been given the spirit of adoption. We have been brought into the family, not as redheaded stepchildren, not as outcasts, not as less than, but as full-fledged heirs of God together with Christ, which is where he's going. But right now, he's saying, we can have access to the Father that before we couldn't have. And so I want to ask you if you are enjoying that confidence. 
Are you praying that way to God the Father? How is your prayer life? I mean, talk about another sign of being led by the Spirit is, is your prayer life. To have this kind of access to God, and so often we just relegate it to praying before a meal or before we go to sleep or when we really need something. But guys, Jesus was praying to the Father while he was on earth constantly. Early in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 1, verse 35, after Jesus has been up all night, basically, casting out demons and healing the lame and, and serving people, in Mark chapter 1, verse 35, it says, And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. He prayed. And this is at the beginning of his ministry. This isn't in the shadow of the cross. This is as things are just getting ramped up and started, and Jesus is up early after a sleepless night serving people, and he's out praying to his Father. And you and I have the same access. And yet we just don't take advantage of it. It's interesting. Prayer is how our relationship with God begins, isn't it? We express our faith in Christ and in our repentance from our sins by praying to God and expressing those things to him, yes? And then prayer, communication with God, communion with God is going to be our reality for all of eternity. We'll behold Christ face to face, right? We're going to have that, that communion with God for all of eternity. But we're in the in-between right now, and it's just it's, it's something that too often is not a priority for us. It'd be like if, if I proposed to my wife, and leading up to that, and, and then I proposed to her, and it was like that, that day that I proposed to her was great. We had great conversations, and we were excited, and we were happy, and everybody was rejoicing, and we set a date for our marriage, and, and it was like a year away, and then we were like, well, see you later. I'll check in every once in a while. And we lived in that gap between our, our, our engagement and our marriage, just kind of every once in a while checking in to say, hey, are, are you still there? How are things going? Guys, that's how we treat God. At Salvation, we've been engaged to God. We've been betrothed to God. And, and we know that there's a day coming in the future where the marriage supper of the Lamb, we're going to be with him in eternity. And, and we're going to be face to face with him. But in the meantime, we're just checking in occasionally. And ignoring one of the greatest blessings of our identity, our, our confidence to approach him in prayer because he is our father. We just don't. If you don't enjoy communion with God now, what makes you think that you're going to enjoy heaven? Because that's what that's going to be about. It's going to be about enjoying uninterrupted communion in the presence of God. Communion meaning relationship, not the, the, the grape juice and the bread. In the presence of God for, for all of eternity. And so if it bores you here, what, what makes you think it's not going to bore you there? And it won't if, if you're, <laughs> I'm not going to do it, interns. If you're really saved, it's not going to bore you there. You're going to love it. But prayer, it's amazing. Look back at verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with your spirit that we are children of God. This is where the argument has been building to. If you live your life led by the Spirit, if you go to the Father in prayer the way we've just been talking about it, you're going to experience this inner confidence that you are God's child, God's daughter, God's son, and you will not have any fear of judgment. You won't live any longer as slaves to sin. And this is what Paul means when he says that the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. That means that you can have confidence that you are God's child, that you are saved. And so let me ask you, if you struggle with your assurance of your identity in Christ, what does your life look like? Is there anything about your life right now that should give you confidence in your standing with God? 
if you want confidence in your relationship with God, it's going to come in direct proportion to the vitality of your relationship with God. If you're going, man, I, I just don't feel sure about my salvation, my guess is that your life is not looking like a life that's led by the Spirit. If you're out there tonight and you're going, man, I am on fire for Christ and I am sure that I am saved, my, my guess is that you're living a life that is looking like it's led by the Spirit. This access to God and our confidence in our relationship with him are, are two of the greatest blessings that we enjoy because of our identity in Christ. But there's a, a yet future blessing, and that's where Paul wraps up, verse 17. If children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. A child is an heir of their parents. And for some of you in this room, like my kids, that's not great news right? You're going, well, awesome. I know mom and dad and I know what they make and they've taken great care of me. By the way, be thankful for that. But I know that I'm not uh, a trust fund kid, right? But when we all of a sudden hear that we are heirs of the God of creation, the God of the universe, that takes on a, a different feeling for us, yes? Or at least it should. Peter describes this inheritance that is going to be ours, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's an amazing inheritance. Right now I'm looking at my son going, son, you get my PS4. Like there's your inheritance. And there's going to be like a PS17 by the time that you get that. So whatever, you know, but you can have that. There you go. That's not imperishable. That's not undefiled. That's not unfading. That's a piece of junk. But guys, we could say that about anything. You could look at Trump's kids and everything that they're going to eventually inherit, whatever. And, and you can look at that in light of what Christ is offering you tonight and, and go, that's, that's a piece of junk. That's garbage. It's worthless. In light of what we have promised to us in Christ. I want to read you the most tangible description of that from Revelation 21. A lot of times we, we talk about, well, we don't know what heaven's going to be like. It's just this place. It's going to be awesome. Clouds, Cupid, bows and arrows, and brilliant light, and singing, and songs, and things. I want to go. We do know what it's going to be like. John saw it. He was there. And he wrote it down for us. He said, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a, a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. That's the first time that we're going to hear that, and that's going to be permanent. That God will forever and ever and ever, without end, dwell in perfect intimacy with us. He can't right now. Why? Because of sin. That's a foreshadowing of one of the things that's coming. He will dwell with them. He will live with them. He will take up residence with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Some of you weep regularly over the brokenness of your life. And, and not for no reason. You weep because you've gone through horrible pain and suffering. You weep because you've been betrayed. You weep because you haven't had a mom and dad who've loved you the way that they should have loved you. You weep because you've been used and abused. You weep because you don't know which way is up sometimes. And John is saying, that part of the inheritance that we've been promised now as the sons and daughters of God is there's going to come a day when God, the Father, is going to wipe away the tears from your eyes like I wipe away the tears from my children's eyes when they come to me because they're hurt. 
And that means that there's no more crying, which means whatever it is that moves you to tears, that breaks you right now, will never come up again for you. Will never be a source of pain and sorrow again for you on that day. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Guys, that sounds obvious to us, and and we can sit there and go, well, great, but some of you, myself included, have lost people in your life far too soon. Or you hear of shootings that take place, like the ones in El Paso and Dayton. Or you hear of cancer. Or you hear of accidents or, or, or whatever it is and you, you see death and you feel death and it, it feels, whether you are a, a believer in Christ or not, it feels wrong. Like this is not how things should be and there's coming a day and an inheritance that is being prepared for you where it will be made right and it will be no more. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away, taken out of memory, out of existence. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my, you know what the next word is? Son, child, daughter. Then we have Paul saying, if we are children of God, we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Coming. There's blessings that we have now. But this is a reward. This is a blessing that is still to come. Our final point tonight is this patiently endure the already not yet. Patiently endure the already not yet. And what I mean by that is that, again, there's already blessings that you and I experience right now. But this one is the not yet. This is that future reality, our inheritance that we will one day come into possession of. And that is the the full reality that we get to look forward to right now. And as we have our eyes fixed there, as we have our gaze fixed there, as we're thinking about that future, it makes us able to endure what we go through right now. For example, I'm going on vacation tomorrow morning, which I just told all of you guys, if you want to break into my house, go for it. I've got an alarm, but I'm not going to tell you my code because you're not part of my family, okay? So there. (laughs) But I'm going on vacation tomorrow, and I've been looking forward to this day. Like, it has been slow to get here, and it's tomorrow. Like, this is the last thing that I have to, I want to be here, but this is the last thing <laughs> that I have to do before I'm, like, done. I'm on vacation, right? I'm, I'm, I'm out, and I'm, I'm looking forward to that, and that's allowed me to patiently endure things this week, not this, but other things that I haven't wanted to do because I'm like, dude, vacation is coming. I can't wait, and you guys have all been there. Don't look at me sideways. You guys have all been there, right? And you think about it and you're like, it's coming, I can taste it, and I know what the reality is going to be like. Guys, that's what heaven should be for us, inheritance that awaits us. And that's why Paul says, provided we suffer with him, provided we suffer with him, provided we endure living as aliens and strangers in this world, provided we daily take up our cross and follow Jesus, provided we battle sin to the death in this world, provided we identify with Christ when no one else will, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. In other words, it's a warning not to fall away, not to drift, but to stay the course because what is coming. Guys, this is why this idea of our identity as sons and daughters of God is better than anything else, than any other identity that we could claim for ourselves. To be the child of the the most successful, most wealthy, most powerful person on this earth will only get you as far as your last breath on this earth. But to be the son or daughter of God, 
that's an identity that secures you for eternity. These are the blessings and the benefits of our identity that are not to be found anywhere else but in a right relationship to God through Jesus Christ. My prayer is tonight that you've come into that realization. If you were with us last week, I pushed hard on that. But I want to do it again tonight. If you have not repented from your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, tonight is the night to do that. Tonight is the night to become a part of God's family. When a a child is adopted, when the judge lowers the gavel and declares that that this case is closed, that they are officially adopted, there's no more, there's there's no trial period. That child is now a full-fledged member of that family. And tonight, you can leave here a full-fledged member of God's family, even if you're not right now. Do the full inheritance just as much as the the most seasoned and, and, and experienced believer in this room. You will both receive an inheritance from God that looks like what I just read from Revelation 21. And so don't delay. Don't put it off any longer. Tonight, choose to repent from your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Change your identity for all of eternity tonight. Become a part of God's family. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this great truth, this great reality that in Christ we are sons and daughters of you, that there is an inheritance that is waiting for us that nothing on this earth can touch, God. No trial can take it from us. No one can steal it from us. No one can can cause us to mess up and, and lose it ourselves. God, it is, it is ours in full reality because we are yours. God, I pray if there's anyone in this room who's not part of your family, that tonight would be the night that they become part of your family. That they would see the value here, that they would see the, the glorious good news of the reality that you, they can be made a, a son or daughter of God tonight that their identity can be changed forever and they can be given an identity that will transcend this life and that will carry them into an eternity with you, God. I pray for our small groups right now that facades would be dropped, that games wouldn't be played, that lives would be changed for your glory through Christ by the power of your spirit. Amen.